morning, everyone. It's good to come into the house of the Lord today and study his word. We'll uh, open up with a word of prayer here, and then uh, we'll get started. Uh, let us pray. Our God and our Father, we give you praise. We thank you for all creation. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you both warm the earth and bring the cold. Lord, we thank you that you have provided for us life. And Lord, that you have given us life abundantly through your Son, Jesus Christ, who brings redemption to us all. Grant us, Lord, your wisdom and grace as we consider your word, for we can understand it not without you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so we're concluding our very brief study of end things. I want to reiterate a few things to you. The goal of this class has not been to answer all the questions. And I know I've accomplished that goal. <laughs> but the, the purpose of this class has been to provide a little bit of a framework uh, with which to consider uh, our view of what God is doing now, um, what God was doing in the first century, and what his promises are for the future. Uh, last week, I, I <coughs> borrowed from uh, Gary DeMar the title of my, the title of my lesson, and I, I called it the uh, clearing of the, the chessboard, right? And um, at the end of the class, uh, Joe over here asked me a question and about you know, the, the chessboard. And I, I want to I say this just for clarification purposes. The idea is to say um, many of us grew up with only one view or understanding of uh, study of end things. And I, I wanted us to take some time, look at the scriptures, recognize that there is a different view. It is the general view of those um, in, inside the, the communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. That's us. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, how God has been expanding us and expanding many of our churches, we've brought in a lot of folks from, from uh, different backgrounds. And I thought both for those who are already part of our church and for those that have been coming in, it would be good to take some time and talk about that. And so when we talk about resetting the chessboard, it is important that we think of this. We all carry preconceived notions into things based off our experience and other things we've been taught. And what I want to say is we need to um, examine the scriptures and then decide what actually belongs <coughs> on the chessboard. And so, again, the purpose of this class has been to say, what does the Bible say? Um, what are ways to know and understand these passages and how do they reflect in how we live our lives every day. And so <clears throat> what I want you to do is walk away from having attended these classes and if you miss some, of course, you can go on YouTube or Spotify and you can pull those off and, and listen to those at your convenience or if you, if you want to be reminded of something. Um, I want you to do that, but I want you to also be talking amongst each other. What are the implications of this? <clears throat> How do I understand this? How do I study um, and, and make this part of my life? And then I want to say at the same time, I want you guys to be doing that. I don't want it to consume you either, right? Sometimes we take our view of, of uh, studying end things 
and looking at the world around us, and it becomes the single motivation in our life. No, our motivation, our calling as Christians is to make disciples of all nations. Where does that start? Anybody? Where does that start? In your, in your family, in your church, in, in, to use this term, in your realm of influence, right? So it's important to know how the things are going to end. It's important to know God's promises. It's important to understand these things. But it isn't the thing that should consume you. What should consume you is knowing God and then teaching others how to live by both your words and the fruit of your faith, your actions, right? So with that, I have some concluding uh, remarks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit a couple of scriptures and then... Uh, read a couple of quotes to you that I thought would be helpful as we come to a conclusion at this time with our study. Uh, this is in Matthew chapter 13, and it says this, at beginning in verse 31, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which is indeed the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And another parable he spoke to them, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. So I want you to understand by what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 13, that the kingdom of God is progressive. It's progressive. And even though it starts out as a small, tiny mustard seed, which is very, very tiny, when you plant it in the ground in your home garden, it grows up and becomes the largest thing in it. But does that happen overnight? No, it takes time. As a matter of fact, I don't know mustard seed, but it grows into more like a tree-like thing, large bush. And it becomes large and it grows year after year after year and it grows large so so too is the kingdom of heaven <clears throat> that that God's word works his church grows I mean let's think about this the early church when we come to the close of Acts you know if, if we were to, to guess how many Christians the world how many Christians there were in the Oikumene or the, the, the Roman kingdom and the places that it had spread to in the first 40 years, how many Christians do you think there might have been? If God was gracious, perhaps hundreds of thousands, maybe. Just a small percentage of the, of the earth's population. Um, how big do you suppose the, uh, the church is today? Is it Millions? Worldwide? Millions? 100 million? 200 million? We don't know. But it's large. It's much larger. And it's going to continue to get that way. And if we are to read the, the newspapers, or the online versions now, <laughs> or, or wherever it is we get our news from, you know, they're going to report the things that are sensationalism, right? These days you get that 
three minutes at the end of the newscast where it's the feel-good story, right? The kind heart over here, but the, the first 27 minutes of a 30-minute newscast is all about the strife and struggle, the terrible things in the world, and I'm not denying that there aren't terrible things in the world. There are, right? But we would be far better off saying, okay, here's some bullet high, high points, things to pray for in our newscast, put a few relevant things out on that, and then say, but look what God is doing. Look what God is doing. Okay? It grows. And, of course, the, the second parable there was the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, in which a woman took and hid three measures, th took a piece, a little piece, and hid it in three measures of meal until all were leavened. That measures was quite a bit. And as they worked that, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it, it produces bread, right? When you cook it, that bread rises, it gets larger, and it has impact. It spreads. <laughs> and, and so I want you to understand that what we're talking about here is that the kingdom of heaven is moving forward. It's moving forward. Second thing I want to point us to, you know, because, again, we think about the struggle between Satan, right, and, and the church and Satan in the world and his power. And in Matthew chapter 16, we see Jesus responding to, to uh, Peter. And he, he, he asked Peter, who do you say I am? And he says uh, that uh, Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, shall not prevail against it. And I will give to you the king's keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Right? So he, he says he's giving the keys of the kingdom to his church. And this isn't just a one-off, right? Because we know that Christ is ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and we've been learning in Ephesians as we've studied that book that we also are co-heirs, co-regents. We are raised up and seated with him. And that the authority that he's given that God the Father has given the Son, he has given the church, right? So all these principalities, all these powers, all these enemies of God, they are under the submission of Christ, of God the Father. You can see this in Psalm 2, right? God the Father, the Son, and what? His people, his people. So um, I, I want us... To, to think about this, about how God is working. Now, again, the other thing that happens to us, I think, in the broader scale, besides what we see in the media, is we look around us and where we are, right? And, and we tend to be people that are um, our very own view-centric, right? If I do this and I'm looking, I can't see parts of the room, right? That's what I see. Like right here, I see the greens right in front of me, right? That's all I see. I can't see 
the Myers over here. I can't see uh, the folks on this side of the room. I, I, I want us to understand that if we could see all that God was orchestrating in the world around us, if we could see how he was calling the lost, how he was establishing his church. You know, some of the, the, the words coming out of China and the growth of the Christian church there, amazing numbers, right? You see this in Africa. You can see this in Central and South America. God is working, and he's working here too, right? Right, you know, I joke sometimes. I call this the People's Republic of Maryland, and I, I actually can't claim that myself. I got that from Ken, but... We have a tendency to say, man, where we live is oppressive. What, you know, it's hard to see what God is doing. And, and remember that even when God had his people in exile, he was working in Babylon, wasn't he? He was establishing his kingdom there. Right? But God is working. You know, I actually think that it seems to me you can find it in pockets, but during COVID in this country, there were revivals. People were confronted with fear and death. Um, real or imagined, doesn't matter, but their fears were realized. And God brought many to him. God brought many of you to new understandings of the scripture. You thought more about the unity of the church and the importance of it. You recognize the power of worship. And there's all things, but, but you know, Having gotten to know the midshipmen over here at the Naval Academy, there was clearly a work of God going on with the midshipmen during the pandemic. God did a whole lot of things We're coming right up to that, that COVID pandemic, right? And then, and then God worked in their lives during that absence, and it is amazing to see the testimonies of how many maybe grew up and they were lukewarm, and God clarified them and called them. There are others who, who didn't know Christ at all, and through his work came to know him. And that, that's just, I'm using that illustration because that's one that we can realize and see right there, right? But that, that is not an isolated event. This has happened all over the place. And so I, I want us to understand that God is at work even when it seems difficult to us. Think about Think about Elijah when he was dealing with the prophets of Baal, right? And he, you know, he has this great victory, and then he runs away, and he's, he's, you know, it's all, it's just me, right? And what does God say? I have kept 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. And I think that number was not simply just 7,000 people. You know, seven being the complete number of God and being the complete number of God into the thousands, right? He has kept his people, right? So don't, don't, don't grow weary in doing what God has called you to do. So with that, I, I want to read a couple of uh, quotations here. Um, this is out of <clears throat> um, He Shall Have Dominion by Ken Gentry. I think, uh, where'd he go? Rick, is he still in the room? I think this is a book that Rick um, Pickering uh, Rick, what's that? Ken Gentry? <clears throat> so I'm just going to read a passage here for us. 
um, because there's, there's always some types of objections we come to, but I want us to, by the time we finish this, our time here in just a few minutes, I want us to be putting our faith in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's what I want us to be thinking of. So this is Ken Gentry. Um, he shall have dominion. This is out of chapter 18, and it says this. In one sense, though it is true that the postmillennialist overlooks the depravity of man, he overlooks it. That is, he looks over and beyond it to see the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see the glorious power of Christ's resurrection overwhelming the destructive power of Adam's fall. We need to consider the strength of grace in comparison to the power of sin. Christ, the Christian should ask himself, have I ever lost a ma- ha, excuse me, have I ever seen a lost man become saved? Have you ever seen a lost person become saved? The answer is yes. This being the case, it is evident that grace is stronger than sin. The Christian should then ask a follow-up question. Does the Bible teach that a saved man can lose his salvation? Here the answer is no. In both cases, we see the superior power of God's grace over man's sin. As postmillennial scholar David Brown once put it, Souls that have felt the Savior's grace know right well it is matchless power. After their own conversion, they can never doubt its converting efficacy on any scale that may be required. When, when the Spirit of God transforms your life, you understand the power of God's grace, right? And so why is it that we want to take a negative scale to that? Is God's grace great enough to save the world, to make disciples, to grow the church on a grand scale? Let's see. Then a second quote on uh, chapter 18, a little bit farther down, it says, We must emphasize this point. We may not convincingly argue for any optimistic expectation for mankind's future on a secular base. This glorious postmillennial prospect is not in any way, shape, or form rooted in humanistic effort. We cannot have a high estimation of man's future based on man himself. For the third mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's Romans 8, 7, and 8. When left to himself, man's world is corrupted and destroyed, a classic illustration being the days of Noah, excuse me, in Genesis 6. But God refuses to lead man to himself. But neither does the hope for man's progress under the gospel relate to the Christian's self-generated strength wisdom or cleverness left to our own efforts we christians too quickly learn that apart from me you can do nothing john 15 5 we our future out excuse me excuse me we're our future outlook rooted in the unaided power even of redeemed man all would be hopeless but our hope is in the resurrected christ 
And as uh, Hobbes, the, the noted theologian, says, says this, the labor is ours, but subduing is his. You know, the gospel is powerful, people. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? I mean, why do we share our faith? Why do we have hope? Our hope is not just for us to get to heaven. Our hope is to walk in the joys of seeing those around us transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lastly, um, at the very end of the general section before the appendix is started in the covenantal kingdom, it says this. I want to read this to you just in helping us think what this means. <clears throat> um, and I'm going to change the first line just a hair because it begins, if you are persuaded of post-millennialism, and I want to simply say, if you are um, at least thinking, man, maybe this is so, right? And again, I think the term post-millennialism is not a good way to describe the view. The view is an optimistic belief that God is faithful, that God is faithful to use us, to use his people, the church, to make disciples of the nations. If you believe that, then you believe that Christ has called us to build his kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. You should be enthusiastically uh, pursuing distinctly Christian cultural advance, either by your own efforts or by financing others who are gifted by God. You should be dedicating yourself to training the next generation to be better and wiser Christians than the present one. If you have children, make sure certain that you provide a Christian education for them. Political concerns and financial investments, too, are part of your responsibility as a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. Evangelism must not, must not be less emphasized, but actually more emphasized, for the Holy Spirit will only save the world through the preaching of God's people. We have an obligation to preach God's word to the people. And, you know, preaching is both, and, and I, I talked about this a little bit when we were going over the, the uh Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 at the, you know, where it was talking about different relationships, wives, husbands, um, fathers, children, and our other relationships where there are superiors and inferiors, right? Can you imagine the transformation in the world around you if you, when you sin against your wife, your husband, your children, your parents, right? If you went to them, confessed your sin, asked for forgiveness, see those relationships restored. First of all, think of the transforming work that, that will happen in your own household. But how does that work when it has to do with your employers or the people you work with or when they come to your house or you go to theirs and you, and you act in these ways? Now, your pastor's not a perfect man. If you've hung around me, you, you recognize that. But it's possible that I could be careless one day and be disrespectful towards my wife in a conversation. And if I were to say, mm, pardon me, everybody, 
make an apology to my wife and ask for her forgiveness right there, would that have impact for the other people around you? Look, I remember, I'm going to confess, tell a story on myself here for sure. This actually happened. It's my last day of a shift with McDonald's. I'm getting married in three days, and I'm working the closing shift, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to get done, you know, try to, let's finish up. And we, we were open till midnight, drive through 10 to 12, and I've got four guys working that night with me. And I'm just, you know, I'm anxious. I'm, I'm getting out of here. And I, I was having a communication problem. And, and um, my, my staff in the kitchen were from Panama and Jamaica, and I can't remember the other place. But English was not their first language, although one could argue Jamaican is your first language. But it was actually the Jamaican I was having trouble communicating <laughs> with. And we had, it's nighttime. Customer asked for butter. I don't know what for. And the way the stores were designed, the butter was in the back. It wasn't up front at all in those days. And so I said to the guy working in the kitchen, could you get me some butter? And he's like, what? I need butter. Customer wants butter. And he kept saying water. So he handed me the water pitcher that he had in the back for cleaning the grill. No, not water. I need butter. Anyway, and I lost my temper. One of two times that I yelled. Um, in, in 20 years, of, but, but it sticks out of my mind, right? And I lost it. And of course, they're all back there flabbergasted, right? And so I go back there, <laughs> grab the butter, <laughs> and keep going. Now I was the only one in drive through so I couldn't really deal with it then. But man, we closed, and I called everybody up front. And I said, brothers, I have to confess my sin to you and you know, ask for forgiveness and, and all of this. And I only want to say, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying, these real things happen. Confess. Ask for forgiveness. See the gospel at work in the world around you. The world would be transformed. The world is transformed by the model of confession and restoration. All right. Um, so evangelism must not be less a C. All right. So evangelism must not be less emphasized, but actually more emphasized for the Holy Spirit only save the world through the preaching of God's people. Rather than relegate evangelism to a few hours of week that one has time for, witnessing in the streets, the postmillennialists see evangelism in broader terms. Witnessing in the street is fine in its place, but it is more important to develop a worldview and a lifestyle that are so distinctly Christian that one is evangelizing, and I would use that word making disciples, in all that he does. For whether we eat or whether we drink, we do it all for the glory of God. When the non-Christians see that we live to the glory of God, they will be converted. Whatever we believe about the millennium, we should seek to live consistently with our faith. Lukewarm, lazy Christianity is an abomination to God. You see that in Revelation 3.16. Christian debate over doctrine is not a hobby or a game nor can it be carried on as an academic exercise. It is a serious pursuit of the truth. And here's important, conducted in the fear of God. In other words, if my pursuit for truth is me beating people to death with things, God is not glorified. 
God, by his rich mercy, has called me. He's saved me. He's forgiven my sins. May I show the same graciousness that God has given me to others. Okay? Finally, <clears throat> we are seeking to answer the most important question we face in our daily lives. How must I live to glorify God? May Jesus Christ, our Lord, grant understanding to his church by the grace of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God the Father. Amen. And, you know, what has been my goal here? And you're, you're going to see this today. If, if you don't hear reflections of these things in today's sermon, I'll be disappointed. Right? But there was actually a purpose in doing Sunday school, covering these issues, talking about these at the same time while preaching through the book of Ephesians. Okay? Ephesians, a great book on understanding the church and God's call to the church, the saints of God, studying in things so we can say, how then should we live? Right? And all of this bringing us all the way up to Advent, which starts next week, and we'll be studying Psalms of Advent through the Advent season. Um, and Advent, of course, is the anticipation of Christ's first coming. You know, we try to put ourselves a little bit in what it would have been like to, to be those that were anticipating seeing Christ come and looking forward to that hope, right? We have that hope realized in Jesus Christ. What joy we have, we can reflect back, and we're going to see God's working during this Advent season to bring salvation to the world. So all that being said, that's, that's our plan, but I want us to be mindful of, of all these things. Based off of the, the things I've talked about today, we have nine minutes for questions. It's a record. <laughs> questions, comments, thoughts? Yes, sir. Ob observation. Maybe yes. you can comment on um, contemporary American evangelical culture, cu culture is comfortable with the idea of either persecution or neutrality. Our culture is very uncomfortable with the idea of gospel success or godly rule. Um, I think in part, some of that stems from we have difficulty accepting God's grace for ourselves, and so it's hard for us to project that hope on others. Um, does that kind of make sense, what I just said? In other words, um, how many have ever had doubts or questions about the validity of your Christian faith? Anybody not put their hands up? I don't think you heard me. <laughs> right? We sometimes, we sometimes, doubts are from Satan the accuser. Questions are legitimate. Okay? So I want, I want to start by saying that. And then I want to say, a lot of times we have a hard time saying, man, I, I, don't, I don't know if, if God's grace is realized for me. His forgiveness is really realized for me. Praise be to God, it's not dependent on you. One second, I'll get you in a second. So I, I think that's part of it. And the other part of it is I think that um, we, we, persecution is good because they're doing it to me. And I'm not, I don't, you know, I can just 
you know, bend over, be beat on the back and head and, and, and take it, as opposed to saying, I can stand firm in Christ, and if I die, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're still going to believe God. But at the same time, seeing standing firm is a type of conflict towards others, right? If you stand firm on the truth, that's conflict. And the truth is, we don't really like conflict. But remember, ours is to, is to faithfully do what God's asked us to do, and it's his responsibility to bring the dominion. Is that, you want to explore that any further? Mark. Uh, I, I've, been, uh, I've been listening to R.C. Sproul's sermon from the last days according to Jesus. Mm-hmm. It was a very specific question, so you don't have to answer it if you, you know, if you don't feel prepared. But uh, he said that Nero is the beast of Revelation, the emperor Nero from Rome. So I, 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 would, uh, I would lean into that, sure. Okay, and and there's, that's actually a question we could take a whole class to, <laughs> but that's a, I think that's very legitimate. I think it does fit in um, the view that um, what what you see happening, uh, and what what Jesus predicts, what the, the the apostles are talking about in the scriptures, what Revelation is pointing to. Um, I, I think I touched on this a little bit. Maybe I didn't, but but if you read through. Um, some of the literature we've made available, you're going to, to see um, that God had, um, you know, he, he calls out his, his people, Israel, and, and they are the priests of the world. And who protects the priest? Okay, we see that this comes in Daniel where God firmly establishes first Babylon, then Persia, then the Greeks, then the Romans. They protect the priests from attacks from elsewhere. That's their calling. And of course, when Christ comes, he brings judgment both against the rebellious Gentile nations in culmination with Nero, right? And, and what, what happens at the end with Nero? Nero not only, um, because at the beginning of, of Acts, it's just, um, it's just the, the priests and the, the, uh, those that were clinging, rejecting Christ, it was, it was uh, you know, they send out Paul to persecute the church, and it's just the church being persecuted by um, the people of Israel, the, those in rebellion to God. And then, um, at the end, you see that Rome no longer is protecting the church, right? But, but instead, they participate in the persecution. Excuse me. And then God delivers his people through a death of, of the destruction of the temple and this great mass of persecution and then resurrects his, his remnant to disciple the nations of the world. So that's kind of just a little response there. We have uh, three minutes. Anything else? Yes? To add to his <clears throat> the observation about the church being neutral or what was the other word used? Neutral persecution. towards persecution. Persecution or neutral. Yes. So I think as you know, we've come out of big Eva type churches fairly recently. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until fairly recently that you 
like we had never heard really a sermon on Jesus flipping the tables of him calling you know the Pharisees whitewashed tombs that so there was never this idea that Christians could push back against culture that Christians could push back and say you're wrong and we're not going to deal with you know we're not going to play your game we're not going to put our kids in your schools for you to dabble with we're not um, you know going to participate in that charade and and so I think that's where this idea of being neutral or being persecuted, it's a lot easier to just say, well, oh, they're attacking my beliefs and then just not do anything about it, um, but continue, you know. Well, Does that make sense? Yeah, so, so one of the poisonous lies that has come into the, 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 the church, right, is, is you, can, you can defeat an army, but the army has no faith in their king. So if you make the king all about a uh, modern view of meekness, right, instead of being the son set by the right hand of the father, giving all authority in heaven and earth, right? If you say, oh, Jesus was meek and we should be meek and quiet and humble. By, by the way, I, we don't really talk about this, and obviously Jesus used um, the the dynamics of the space he was in by speaking from the boat upwards of the people this way or up on a mountainside speaking to people so his voice would carry. But I suspect he didn't go like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Now I imagine he was speaking loudly because there were hundreds, sometimes thousands of people out there. Right? When Jesus fed the 5,000 and that was just the men, what? There's probably upwards of 20,000 out there. I can't imagine. I know I can't throw my voice like that, right? But Jesus spoke with, and it says this too, he spoke with authority as one who had authority. He did have authority from the Father, right? So, but our authority is not in ourselves. Our authority <laughs> is not in our own works. Our authority is on God and his word, right? And so we can speak firmly, directly, and still be kind and compassionate. So, but I, I think that's the issue. That, that Satan said, man, if I can get these people to think softly about Jesus, about him and his kingship. Because you don't really hear it talk about the kingship of Jesus too much. No, he is king. He is king. All right. <clears throat> yes, sir. Well, dispensationalism, his kingdom is completely futurist. So they don't even pretend that he's kingdom. And that's the predominant view in the culture. You know, so no wonder Anticipating, you know, the failure of the gospel, and and that's actually what you want to have happen, so that down the road, you know, Christ will return and, and finally assume the throne. You know, and anything against that is, you know, to use their term, is you know, polishing the brass on the on the Titanic. You had a question. I'll let you finish off.
This is where standing firm takes two places, right? We stand firm together as the church in the public square, <coughs> and there's power in that. And there's power in the bended knee of a father or a mother or a person in the church speaking and teaching a child to love God, to love his word, and to love the fathers that have come before us. Right? I say fathers generally, right? The church church history, all that gets tossed aside because we want new and modern and up to date and, and it has to be cutting edge. I can't tell you, I studied youth ministry in Bible college. I'm so glad that despite my best efforts to, to focus on that, God kept pushing me into other classes that were going to be much more helpful in, in, in uh, pastoring people, right? Um, but you know, that was also, that was also a, a, you know, cool and relevant, right? You want to all this, although it's, it's funny, even though I had a pursuit of cool, and Celeste will tell you I had very long hair in high school, and, you know, and I had other things that I did in pursuit of cool, um, I soon recognized that the pursuit of cool was, was a, a problem. And you think about this, if, if uh, pagans and immature people really, really love something, at the very least, it ought to be a cautionary flag for us, right? All right, let's pray and prepare our hearts. Oh God, our Father, we give you praise. We thank you that the gospel will prevail. Lord, we pray humbly that you would use us, your people, to extend your kingdom in our homes, in our communities, in our workplace. And Lord, we just ask that you would please bring a revival. Use us, oh Lord, to reach the world. Father, please prepare our hearts for worship and the renewal of your covenant promises with us. In Jesus' name, amen.